Welcome to the Seven Hills Church Podcast with Marcus Mika. We're excited you're here listening as Pastor Marcus is about to bring an incredible teaching that is sure to inspire, motivate, and lift you up. You can visit us on our website at sevenhillschurch.tv or download our free Seven Hills Church app to watch or listen to more exclusive content. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed the message. Psalms 136 and verse 1. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Why don't you say that with me? Say, his mercy endures forever. Why don't you say it one more time? Up front, hold up. I want you to say it like you're going to be with me the whole sermon. So say it. Just kind of up, get me fired up, up front. Like, hey, pastor, we're, we're going to be with you. We're, we're not going to check out on this one. We're with you. So say it like that. Say, his mercy, his mercy endures forever. Come on, we might have church today. Give thanks to the Lord, the God of capital G, of God's little G. For his mercy endures forever. There it is one more time. Why don't we say it one more time? For his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, big L versus little L. For his mercy endures forever. One more time. Just spoil me real quick. For his mercy endures forever. We could continue to read throughout this chapter. And what you would find is 26 times the psalmist says that phrase in one chapter. This is known as the mercy chapter. 26 times the psalmist remembers the times that God was faithful, the times that God came through. He reminisces about the Red Sea swallowing up Pharaoh's army. He reminisces about the angel food or the manna that God provided every single day. He begins to Recollect all the times that God was faithful and all he can say every time he has a memory concerning the faithfulness of God is his mercy endures forever. That's what I want to talk to you about today. His mercy endures forever. That phrase means nothing can stop his mercy. If you're away from God, mercy can find you. If you're deep in sin, mercy reaches deeper. If you're living a life that doesn't count, mercy can renew the purpose of God in your life. If you're beating yourself up because of failure and mistakes, his mercy is sufficient. If you're hurt or broken or heartbroken, if you're confused, there is no place in your life, there is no situation that mercy is afraid to go. If you were to find yourself reading the book of Romans, you would open up with Paul's greeting that says grace and peace to you. Every time Paul writes a church, he uses that phrase in his greetings, grace and peace to you. He says it to the Corinthian church two times. He says it to the church of Galatia. He talks to the church of the Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, and you read it in First and Second Thessalonians, he gives that greeting, grace and peace unto you. Every time he addresses a church, grace and peace unto you. 
But then when Paul writes his letters to individuals like Timothy or Titus, he adds a word to his phrase. If he talks to the churches, it's grace and peace. But when he talks to the individuals, he says grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. He adds a word, the word mercy, every time he talks to Timothy and Titus. And that's because when you're dealing with people, you have to add mercy. When you're dealing with your relationships, when you're dealing with yourself, you can't just think in large overarching terms. You can't just think shotgun shots. You have to think, man, I've got to be a sharpshooter in an area of mine. And mercy is the way that you apply just the sharpness of God to the uniqueness of your situation. It's, it's the idea that each of us is unique and we each knew, need, according to the Bible, brand new mercy Every single day is what the book of Lamentations says. Every single day you need new mercy. It's not because yesterday's mercy gets old, but it's because today you have a brand new set of problems. You have brand new challenges. You have brand new struggles. And so you need mercy for those unique things that you personally will face in that day. His mercies endure forever. His mercy endure. I'm trying to get you to see that Psalms 119 says it like this. Psalms 119 says, cleanse me from my secret faults. Secret faults refer to the idea that all of us have areas of our life that they're secret. No one else knows about certain things in our life. They're secret areas, secret sins. No human being on the planet Knows, But we know, we know there's a secret fault in our life. But then there's also faults in our life that they're secret not only to others, but they're even a secret to us. Every person in this room has a fault that you don't even know you have. You have something going on inside of your heart that God looks down and he finds fault and you don't even know it's there. You become blind to it over time. You begin to justify it, explain it away. You begin to, in your mind, get so good at sidestepping that that area is off. You don't even notice it anymore. It's a, it's a blind, secret fault in your life. It could just be an attitude that's off. It could be a mindset that leans the wrong way. It could be a behavior that's just not in line with the scriptures or what God is wanting you and I to think like or to live like. And in those secret faults, I need mercy today for those areas, not just the areas you don't know about, but the areas I don't even know about myself. I need mercy for the secret faults in my life. His mercy endures forever is what the psalmist said. Every time he thought about the uniqueness of how God came through for him specifically, him uniquely, he would say his mercy endures forever. You see, when you see my faults, there's a harsh judgment. But when God sees my faults, there's tender mercy. And his mercy 
endures forever. There's never a time that his mercy won't be there. In 10,000 years, the same mercy that's strong today will be strong then. When I'm 80 years old and rounding third on my way home, can I just tell you his mercy that's strong today will be strong in that moment. There's never a time that his mercy will not endure. First Chronicles chapter five, verse 17. King Solomon has just finished building the temple. And this has been a plan that his father David had come up with. They had taken decades and sacrificed and come up with the resources and the materials for the building of the temple. It's finally complete. The day has arrived where they're going to have their their service to, to dedicate the temple. And as they're making preparations, King Solomon walks in. The Ark of the Covenant finds its way into the temple. The people, as you can imagine, are, are electric and excited about this dream being fulfilled. The singers are singing. The worshipers are worshiping. The musicians are playing. The place is is electric with expectation and King Solomon stands up and like a king would he's planned his dedication prayer every single word he's planned it there's been different revisions and renditions he wants to make sure that he says exactly the right things to dedicate the temple he wants to have the right words he wants them to be the perfect words this is a plan he's not going to wing this prayer. He's not going to wing this moment. He's not going to do like I'm doing with most of this sermon. He's planned. He's in order. He's structured. And he sets out to pray the prayer that he had planned. And right in the middle of that prayer, right in the middle of doing what he was planned, in the middle of his agenda that he was set, he had set, he goes off script And he says in that environment, in that moment, that same phrase that the psalmist gave us 26 times in the mercy chapter, his mercy endures forever. The only thing he could think about when he looked at the completion of the temple, the only thing that could come to his mind, no matter how prepared he was, no matter how structured he was, no matter how how planned that moment was the only thing that could come to his mind was that phrase his mercy endures forever his mercy endures forever he couldn't stand in that moment and take credit he couldn't stand in that moment and give his dad credit he couldn't stand in that moment and pat everybody on the back and say It's because of you. All he could do was think about the mercy of God and declare the mercy of God. As he began to declare it, the Bible says that the presence of God filled the temple in such a great way. This is the place that you read about the Shekinah glory of God. This is the tangible presence of God. It's when God shows up in such a real way that it is tangible. It is evident. It is experienced. They said it's set like a cloud in the temple and as they're worshiping and as Solomon is declaring his mercy endures forever, the priest has his role in the service and he's supposed to stand up and preach his sermon. But the Bible says the presence of God was so strong that the priest 
could not minister. And the people had their agendas. They had their roles, what they planned to do inside of the service. But the only thing the people could do in the presence of God was cry out that same phrase that the psalmist gave us in Psalms 36. 26 times he said it. And that's all the people could do in the presence of God is cry out his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. When I think about this church and I think about what God is doing and I think about the stories and the testimonies that you've heard up here and I really think about all the different ministries that are expanding constantly and I think about all the different areas where God is working on people's lives. I just feel like I maybe need to do the same thing as Solomon did. I maybe need to do the same thing as others throughout history have done. Just go off script ask you for a commercial break just briefly and just say to you and to all that are here, I don't look around and think to myself, man's done this. I don't look around and think of the brilliance of man or the ingenuity of people. What I do is I look at every single thing that happens and all I've got to say is the same thing they've said for the ages. It's the same thing the psalmist said. It's the same thing Solomon said. His mercy endures forever. I wish maybe you would take a minute and admit that in this service, You could go ahead and just keep acting like you always act. Sometimes you worship like this. Sometimes you worship like this. Sometimes you worship like that. And you have an agenda. You have a way that you do it. The message gets over. Well, you wait five minutes before it gets over. You slip out. That's your plan. That's how you do it. It's the way you do it all the time. Just gave you the little jab. All you early leaving people. And and here we are. And you have your plan. You have your agenda But could I just encourage you? Maybe you need to do the same thing. Go off script for just a minute. Act a little abnormal for just a minute and be honest and admit you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be where you're at in life. You shouldn't have come as far as you've come. You should have been taken out a long time ago. And can you go off script and just say in the presence of God, his mercy endures forever. Come on, his mercy It really does endure forever. First Chronicles chapter 1641, we see it again. The Ark of the Covenant had been stolen. For decades, it had been outside of the people of God's presence. And finally, after many years, the Ark is recovered. And the story is that King David, as the ark comes to Jerusalem, he begins to dance and he begins to praise God around the ark of the covenant. And he's so passionate and emotional that he's rejoicing, which means he's jumping and spinning about wildly. And as he's doing that, many of you know the story, his kingly garments fall off. And all he has is his underwear on and he's dancing and he's praising God totally unaware of what anybody is thinking. But people are watching King David and they do have their thoughts about the way he's acting. One particular person is his own wife, Michael. She looks down and she sees King David acting like he's acting and she's beginning to say to herself, the king shouldn't act like that. The king, someone in his position Somebody with his type of uh, prestige shouldn't 
allow emotionalism to take over like that. There's a way a king is to act. There's a way a king is to, to carry himself. And it's not that way. The king is acting foolish. But King David doesn't care what anybody else thinks. King David is not concerned with the criticism of other people. And he begins to say in that moment, those same beautiful words that the psalmist said 26 times in Psalms 136, his mercy endures forever. You see, as David was dancing, he was remembering the time that he was the castaway in his own family. He was remembering the time that he stood in front of Goliath and all he had was a slingshot and a stone. And he knows that it wasn't his skill that knocked out a giant and defeated a nation. He's dancing and he's declaring the mercy of God because he remembers King Saul's sword whistling past his ear. And he knows that he's not where he's at because he's perfect or because he deserves it. He knows he's there because his mercy endures forever. He's made it because of the mercy of God. And you and I have made it because his mercy endures forever. There was another time in the temple. Well, the temple had actually been destroyed. The children of Israel had been taken into captivity for 70 years. They were in captivity. The scripture paints a picture that during these homesick, lonely years, they would gather along the river Chabar and they would take their instruments, their harps, their worship instruments, and they hung them on the trees by the river. The symbolism behind that is they had given up. They were done praising God. They were done worshiping. They had given up. There was no songs of victory in their hearts, no songs of joy in their heart. They had completely given up just sitting there, defeated along the river. For 70 years, they were away from home. For 70 years, they were homesick for the land that they had. we just talked about and read about. And all of a sudden, a guy comes along by the name of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel says, let's go back to our home. Let's go back and rebuild the temple. And in Ezra chapter 3, you begin to read about the details of what happened. People gathered from near and from far. They came from everywhere. The multitudes gathered. There, the city, the walls of the city, the temple was in ruin. They begin to remove the debris. They begin to clean up the foundation of the temple. They begin to rebuild the foundation. They begin to rebuild the walls of the temple. And as this is happening, and as it begins to take shape, the only phrase that they can come up with, the only sentence that comes to mind, the only phrase that they can utter as the temple is being rebuilt is once again those beautiful, sweet words, his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. The word endure means nothing can stop it. It's the Greek word to conquer in other words, the face of mercy is not a passive pushover. The face of mercy is that of a conquering warrior. In other words, mercy knows how to fight. Mercy knows how to conquer. Many times we need to know that mercy is not afraid to march into the battles that we have in life. Mercy knows how to stand up courageously 
to the destructive forces trying to come against your home and your life. Mercy, by the way, is undefeated. Mercy knows no loss. Mercy is undefeated for one real reason, not because it's never been challenged in our lives. It's undefeated because it doesn't know how to give up. It doesn't know how to quit. It endures forever. It just keeps on going. It keeps on fighting. It keeps on pressing. It keeps on pursuing. It keeps on and it keeps on and it keeps on because his mercy endures forever. So what does this look like practically? And then we'll get out of here. What does this look like practically? It plays out two primary ways. One, in unearned kindness. And two, in the giving of undeserved forgiveness. Matthew chapter five, verse seven says, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Notice the scripture there doesn't say blessed are those who show mercy for they shall obtain mercy. It uses the phrase, blessed are the merciful. So mercy is not what we do, mercy is who we are. We are merciful, and when we're merciful, we obtain mercy in our life. The Vines Concordance says mercy is an outward manifestation. It's active. It's finding solutions to real problems. So there's several ways we see this being played out. In Luke chapter 10, there's the story of the Good Samaritan. We know the story, but I want you just to revisit it with me for just a second. The scripture says there's a guy that ends up getting jumped by some thieves and he's beat up and left to die in a ditch. And it just so happened that a priest is walking by, a pastor is walking by, and he looks down and he sees this guy in a ditch. This guy's hurting. This guy is is in a desperate place. And the priest actually notices what's going on. And he feels what's going on. He's warmed on the inside, thinking to himself, man, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not where that person is. Thank you for bringing me out of the ditch. Thank you for bringing me out of those situations where I shouldn't have made it. Thank you for bringing me out. And thank you for the warmth I feel in my heart for someone that's there. Lord, I really hope that somehow, some way, this individual will get the help that I've received. And he moves on. Then another religious person goes by and they have the same experience. They're warmed on the inside, on the inside. They feel compassion on the inside. They feel uh, kindness towards the person, but they just walk by. And then another individual walks by the good Samaritan and he goes down and the Bible doesn't say he really feels anything. He just gets down and he goes to work. He just gets in the ditch and he gets dirty. He gets in the ditch and he finds out what's the problem. What's the condition of this guy? What does he need? What's the solutions that need to be applied? The real everyday solutions that need to be applied to this guy that's not going to make it any other way. And then he does real work, real work, not spiritual work, real work. Gets his hands dirty, picks the guy up, throws him on his horse, takes him to the inn, and comes up with a legitimate plan for the guy to get what he needs. And this is the picture 
the practical picture that we get of mercy. Not an inward feeling, not an inward fuzzy, warm fuzzy, not an inward, oh, I feel so good. No, it's an outward working. It's actually getting down in the ditch with other people and helping them out of their broken, hurt situation. Jesus showed us that he doesn't just tell us to live this way. He showed up and he lived this way. Remember, the Bible says he goes to the pool of Bethsaida in John chapter 5. Bethsaida means the house of mercy. And he goes to this place and John 5 gives us great explanation of the environment that Jesus finds himself in with the pool of Bethsaida. I think house of mercy, I think a nice, beautiful church like this. I think pool of Bethsaida. I think a pool. I think of like a spring. I think of like a beautiful place the elite would go. I think of a place that you would go and socialize or a parent would go and take their kids to throw pennies and make wishes in the pool or maybe a place you go feed the ducks. But the Bible says that it's by the sheep gate or by the sheep market, which tells us that this is a place on the outskirts of town, not just on the outskirts of town, but this is a pool that they allow the sheep to drink from. This is a pool that the sheep bathe in. So by the multitudes, you have dirty, filthy sheep. The only reason you go to the sheep market is to get a sheep. You don't go to the sheep market to hang out. You don't go to the sheep market because you like to you know, just enjoy life and you're just trying to go for a stroll and get a new experience. You go there and experience the sights and the sounds and the smells only if you have to. And also the Bible says there's a multitude of the sick and the lame that are gathered at that pool. This is the picture of this situation where the house of mercy is being talked about is in that kind of an environment Think about the environment, and that's where mercy is. Jesus shows up, and as he shows up, he starts having conversations with a specific guy that's there and wants to know why he is in that situation. And the guy says, I've been here 38 years. 38 years, not one person has ever walked away from buying a sheep and come over here and looked at my situation and come up with a solution to help me get out of it. In 38 years, four decades, not one person has ever come over and talked to me creatively, showed me kindness and helped me out of that situation. And Jesus says, well, guess what? Those days are over. That story is over. I'm here and I'm gonna help you out of it. And guess what? A house of mercy provides for people. A house of mercy provides for people healing for whatever brokenness is in their life, forgiveness for whatever has transpired in their life and hope for whatever's going on. And I just wanna take a minute and say what Seven Hills is called to be is a house of mercy. This isn't a sanctuary for the religious and the all together, the sights, the sounds and the smells of every imaginable person should be in this room. The addicted, the lows, those whose lives are ruined, the messed up, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, all those people, you know, those people, this should be a place that the house of mercy is built. And those are the kind of people God calls us to reach out to because mercy practically plays out in real everyday solutions for people. The second way we see it is in undeserved forgiveness. Undeserved forgiveness. The Bible gives so many uh, explanations of that. One place, it actually says that 
his house is not for the well, but for the sick. And then in Matthew 13, he follows it up with, by saying, would you learn what this means? And he doesn't just say it and then move on. He says, would you learn what this means? And then he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, when it comes to the condition of people's hearts, God's not looking for us to be sacrificial. He's looking for us to be merciful. He's looking for us to be honest and open about what are the real ways we can be involved in helping the sick. What's their condition? Why are they where they're at? Not just what are the symptoms, but what are the root causes? What's going on? And then how can God use me as a unique instrument of his mercy to apply some type of healing to their specific situation and their specific issue? That that's what the house of God's for. Not to just broad stroke it, but personally and individually, God wants to find some way to get mercy to every individual situation and every unique circumstance in people's lives. Another place you read about this understanding of mercy being played out in forgiveness by the story of the guy who's forgiven this massive amount. He's forgiven this massive debt. And then he goes out, and as soon as he comes out of prison, he sees somebody that owes him just a small amount, and he executes judgment on that person instead of mercy. He received mercy, but he doesn't give mercy. He gives judgment. And the Bible says because he received mercy, but he wasn't merciful, is what the Bible says. James chapter 3 says it like this, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you go to the Old Testament, and I'm all over the place right now, but if you go to the Old Testament, what you would see is the Ark of the Covenant has several realities to it. One of them is the Ten Commandments are, in, are on the inside of that. The commands of God are on the inside of the Ark of the Covenant. But what's over the Ten Commandments is the mercy seat. God made sure that mercy always triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This guy shows up, he had received mercy, but instead of giving mercy, he executes judgment. And this is a symbol to us of someone that doesn't practically know how the mercy you've received is the mercy you have to give. I read a story in a book recently that I think is so helpful and we'll be out of here. This is from the book, The Hiding Place. Her name is Corey Tinbaum, the author of this book, and she tells a personal story about a guard from the Rovensbruck concentration camp. Her sister had died in this concentration camp, and Corey had experienced and suffered horrible punishment there. There was a church service years later in Munich that she was speaking at, and she looks out in the crowd and she sees this guard that was the doorkeeper of the shower room of this processing center in Ravensbrook. And this is the first face she's seen of anybody that was at that concentration camp for years. She had tried to forget about it, tried to move on, and she sees his face, this Nazi guard, and suddenly, immediately, she's swept back. She's beginning to think about all the women 
that are gathered in this shower. They'd been stripped, their clothes in a corner, and the guards mocking and laughing at the women. She's remembering, looking at her sister's pain-filled face before she's executed. And as she's thinking about this, this man comes up to her, this guard, this Nazi guard that had caused so much pain in her life and the life of others. And he says to her, thank you for your message. Isn't it amazing that he washed my sins away? And he reached out to shake my hand, is what she says in the book. And she says, I've preached on forgiveness. I've taught other people about forgiveness. But she said, in that moment, my hand was glued to my side. The only thoughts I had were thoughts of revenge. The only thoughts I had were thoughts of anger. They boiled through my body. And she said, I thought to myself, Jesus died for this guy. Jesus died for someone like this. I couldn't get myself to accept it. So she says, I prayed, God, forgive me for thinking like this and help me forgive him. She says, I tried again to lift my hand, but I could not. She says, I felt no compassion. I felt no love. I felt no kindness towards this individual. She says, so I breathed a silent prayer again. Jesus, I cannot do it. I cannot forgive this guy. I need your help. And she tells the story as she took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. She says, from my shoulder, along through my arm, through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While in my heart, at that moment, sprang a love for this stranger that had overwhelmed me. And as she tells the story about undeserved forgiveness, a guy that did not earn her forgiveness, a guy that did not deserve her forgiveness. What is she trying to teach us? She's trying to teach us that you cannot stop mercy. Mercy conquers. Mercy fights. Mercy pushes and presses. And his mercy, because it endures forever in your life, his mercy should be flowing from you to every situation in real ways of kindness, in real ways of forgiveness, whether people deserve it or not. His mercy endures forever. What marks us as a people is not our religious creeds. What marks us as a people is not that we're gathered in a room on a Sunday morning. What marks us as a people, the Bible teaches us, is how we love the unlovable, how we reach out with mercy to even the people that have not earned it and not deserved it. And that's how we show the mercy of God endures forever. Max Licato wrote it like this. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your picture would be in it. He sends flowers in the spring and sunrises every morning to each and every one of us. When you want to talk, he's always there to listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, yet he chooses your heart. Face it, friends. God is crazy about us. His mercy is endures forever his mercy endures forever I don't know if you're kind of getting where I'm coming from but Psalms 136 26 times so redundant over the top unnecessary I mean we get it in the first verse we kind of get it a little bit more in the second verse by the third verse or the fourth verse it's clear No need to go 26 times talking about his mercy endures forever. His mercy 
endures forever. Every now and then, repetition is important. Every now and then, you sometimes have to repeat over and over the same thing. It's like cranking an engine. You have to say it again and again and again because you got to charge that back up in your heart. you got to charge the gratitude, the thankfulness back up in your heart. And sometimes you just have to pick a phrase like that. For his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Can we take just a second and turn this church service into a mercy chapter for just a second? And can we stand up on our feet and can we just take a minute and think about our unique situation and think about your life, your family, your home, your sin, your mistakes, your mess up, the way you've done life, the way you've gone at life. And all of us have things that we just need to take a moment and say, God, your mercy has really endured in my life. Your mercy has endured. It's been constant. It's been consistent. It's not given up. It's not backed off. It's not quit fighting. It's, it's not quit swinging. The face of mercy is continually fighting for every single one of us. Can you just lift your hands all across this room as we end our time together and just declare his mercy endures forever. Come on over your children. His mercy endures forever. Every dad in this room, come on, say it over your family. His mercy endures forever. Every mom in this room, talk about it for a second. His mercy endures forever. Can I get everyone that's in this room, every teenager, every young person to take just a second and say his mercy endures forever. 26 times the psalmist said it. Can we take a minute and begin to think about people in our life that are away from God, family members, work colleagues, friends at school, people in our life, maybe for decades they've been in the position they're in and they've been outside of the mercy of God. Can we just take a minute and declare God's mercy over somebody, maybe even mention their name. Come on, just say his mercy endures forever. This Christmas season, God, let you use us as vessels of mercy, instruments of mercy. May your mercy endure forever in every life, in every heart. Work through us, God, to be a light in the midst of the darkness, not just in spiritual ways, but in real practical ways. May it play out in how we show kindness and forgiveness this Christmas season in Jesus name. One more time, all together, like we mean it, his mercy endures forever in Jesus name.